So, oh, wait, wait, wait. I have a question for you. <laughs> Ooh, what's going on outside? I'm so sorry. You might have to mute me for part of this. Or I might have to, like, find... Yeah, but if like, you speak, those... I can't mute you while you're speaking. <laughs> I know. Oh, god wait, damn. Wait, 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 it's fine. People just gotta ha- stop having fires and emergencies in my yeah, neighborhood yeah. so I can fucking record my podcast. There's no respect that's what, for podcasters you know, in Brooklyn. I think that's, a, that's an issue that we really haven't actually um, addressed on this podcast yet is when do people just start taking responsibility for their lives and stop relying on the government to solve every problem for them? You know, I think that's an important idea that we need to get across because we don't want to create a, a victim culture amongst our listening audience. And with that, today, guys, we're going to be discussing uh, Atlas Shrugged and why poor people deserve to die. So I, I do actually have a question for you, though. I have an answer for you, I do hope at least. you think, how, how confident are you that you could explain what dialectical materialism is? Slash, have you heard those words before? Only because you've texted them to me a number of times with the only with that as the only context as to the work we're reading next and how you're excited about it. But other than that, no, I would probably refer them to you okay. because you seem way more enthusiastic about it. All right. So I watched. Um, well, okay. I didn't watch the whole thing, but I noticed <laughs> I was scrolling through my YouTube recommendations a um, couple months back. And I remember um, the Jacobin youtube page had done an interview between colin kilpatrick i think is his name kaepernick no no not the <laughs> football player i'm so sorry he's probably you probably just haven't heard it. i think he i think he's a guy who writes for jacobin and matt I, i'm sorry i just assumed you didn't know sports <laughs> um and and then matt chrisman who is of course uh of chapo trap house and and the 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 title of the interview is matt chrisman explains dialectics and and i remember i remember i hope his name is colin because i didn't go check before just now um it's it's a c name it's a two-syllable c name i'm, I'm gonna call him colin um and he um it could be connor it might be connor i don't know okay yes he asks. He, he, asks, he goes so i've heard rumors that you understand dialectics and that really stuck with me because i was like i don't think i understand dialectics whatsoever and like i heard matt like try to explain it and i didn't still didn't get it at all um but but i i I didn't get it uh going into it so i decided i was gonna do some reading i read a lot of interesting people we're gonna talk about uh friedrich engels mostly uh read a little bit of uh the social democrat karl kotsky uh and i also read um a little bit of stalin so we're gonna we're gonna shoot around a little bit um mark are we delving into tanky territory um no i don't i honestly don't think so like this is this is all um the ideas that we're going to talk about should actually be things that most leftists can agree on at least on some level there are definitely um not all leftists are are are, are super like materialist like there are definitely a lot of idealist leftists um and stuff like this but a lot of the ideas that we talk about i think are things that most people uh who believe in 
making the world a better place through political action should be able to agree on because they're very foundational. I like thought of dialectics as something that was like really um, conceptual and not that concrete. And I didn't understand why I should put the time into under into like getting them because I didn't understand what um, the purpose of them was, but I get it more now so hopefully i can actually explain that yeah i stopped listening after you said most leftists should agree with because that's physically impossible but um i would like to learn more about this because it sounds like it's something you're passionate about and you know i just like seeing you happy mark that's it that's all i want in the world we'll we'll, we'll talk about places um really it's the materialism question like murray bookchin uh did not strike me as very materialist he struck me as some but we'll talk about the distinction um a little bit later uh so let's do it I'm looking at the script, like just like skimming it with my eyes, and I'm so happy. I'm I've started drinking for this. It's gonna be no. It's it's it's. I I think it's actually gonna be pretty comprehensible. If you say so. If you <laughs> want to dive into, I it, actually ready. feel very confident that's gonna be comprehensible, and you're gonna help me with that because if I say something that is incomprehensible, then you can tell me, and then hopefully I'll be able to explain it better. You know, I'm I'm the relevant um, relevant resident uh, low IQ correspondent. So if I don't get something, I'll let you know. You know what we forgot to do? Introduce this episode. Oh yeah, my god! Wanna, yeah, wait. We do you want to do it? Got to do the little it? intro shit. You can do it this time. I don't pander to me like that. You can just just do it, Mark. Just 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 tell everyone what podcasts they're listening to. Welcome to We Read Theory, the podcast where we read theory, so you don't have to. My name is Mark. But you can if you want. You can read theory. I'm Alex. You can read theory. Would, would you say, I'm sorry, can you say your name again? I interrupted you. Oh, oh, Alex with an A. A is an apple or astronaut. Whichever you prefer. So, as we discussed in whatever section of the last 30 minutes that I'm going to turn into an intro... Dialectics is a bit of an illusory concept for a lot of leftists, uh, and I think I've proven my case there uh, already. And it certainly was for me for quite a while. I knew that a dialectic was a way of thinking about interactions between forces and ideas. You have the thesis and the antithesis, and these two things contradict each other in some way, and when they come together, uh, they kind of fight it out and you get the synthesis, which is something new that resolves the contradiction that used to exist. 
And that's all well and good and pretty easy to understand in the abstract, but I didn't understand how to bridge the gap between this simple structure and the actual meaning of dialectics to Marxist analysis. Dialectics also exists within a wider array of Marxist jargon terms like dialectical materialism and historical materialism, which are all really important to the Marxist worldview, but are also kind of illusory and hard to grasp. And I tended to just let these concepts fall by the wayside in favor of more concrete observations and prescriptions, because I couldn't really get them to make a whole lot of sense, and I really couldn't understand why they are so important to Marxism when it seems that simple, straightforward observations about our world are perfectly sufficient to justify concepts like socialism. But when we read theory, TM, and especially Marxist theory, you read a lot of reply pieces, and one of the most common charges brought against non-Marxists by Marxists is that their analysis is not dialectical or not materialist. So I really began to feel uncomfortable, like, I was getting the right answers on a math test, but I didn't actually understand the math. So that's what this episode is about. We're not just going to get the right answers, we're going to understand the math, and we're going to understand what Marxists mean when they make these kinds of um, arguments about other kinds of socialists. Yeah, as someone who got a math degree in college, you can't really actually do anything by like just memorizing formulas and fun things that like sound good when i when i had to learn calculus um i remember the way that i i i learned the best i ever did in a calculus class was for a period of time where when i was assigned uh like a reading or like a homework in the in in like a math textbook and there was a problem i didn't get i would just stare at it for like an hour trying like thinking really hard about it until i understood why everything did what it did and then i knew it forever but until I, now, which I, I don't know how to do calculus now, so see, I, I don't do know really that I could take things. a derivative right now. I that's probably one of the one things I could do, and in my job where I do math every day, it, it doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter at all that I can do that. It's, I would, yeah. You reduce the power by one, or do you, in, and then you do something else to the thing that the power is two. I'm not going to explain how to do a derivative on here because this that's not what this podcast is about. Maybe I'll start a math podcast remember, one day. I, I had a friend who was an engineer um, and she I, I asked her for help uh, when I was first learning calculus and I didn't even I didn't know how to do anything. And so and so uh, she was we were like going through a problem. She goes, OK, so you take the derivative and I go, OK, how do I take the derivative? I was a freshman math. I was like a freshman, like econ student in like my first calc class, and she was a sophomore engineer. So like, this was so she was just like, I, j- you take the derivative, just take it. Like, <laughs> I don't even know how to explain this to you. <laughs> See, that's a bad teacher. Okay, I I would love to become no, a math no, no, teacher. No, no, no. But she I, I, she yeah. she did explain it to me. I did get it eventually. But yo, for real, that was her um, twenty. Like, what is it, like 16 to 20% of our listeners are like ages 16 to 20? If any of y'all need help with math homework, DM me on Twitter, because I would love to like actually put my degree to use. Oh, follow us on Twitter at We Read Theory Pod. Also, mi- little little mid-episode plug. I'm kind of putting my, not my, not my econ degree, but my, but my minor in medieval studies is kind of getting put to use it's i'm doing a lot of the same basic things i used to do 
I, I feel like if anyone minors in anything, it's something they choose midway through their college career. It ends up being someone something they really love a oh, lot yeah. more than their actual major. What what I finished up my econ degree uh, the first semester of my senior year, and so I was basically just a medieval studies student my the, my last semester, and I worked harder and got a better GPA that semester than ever before. And you probably enjoyed your, your oh, time I had a there great more. Time. It was it was fantastic. I also took a life drawing class, so I got to so like. Like twice a week, I would show up and someone would just be naked in the middle of the room and you would draw them. And uh, that was absolutely lit. That was one of the best times I ever had. I had a art teacher who, uh, on our very first day, he had us draw like a plastic skeleton. And he comes around to um, my um, art. He comes around to what I've drawn. He tells me that that's horrible and I need to start over. And so I take it down and I start a new one. About 10 minutes later, he comes by. I'm like halfway through the skeleton again. And he goes, oh, well, that's better, but it's still shit. And I knew- Wait, wait, did he say it like that? Because I remember you like no, having a specific quote No, but I'm not going to do, like- offen- do the offensive Montenegrin accent. Oh, I thought it was Russian. I'm stupid. Oh well, my God. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I, a, I'm a filthy American and I have no idea what different accents sound like. So I'm sure my Montenegrin sounds like a Russian accent. Uh, okay. I know he said it's better, but still shit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about dialectics. <laughs> <laughs> Impeccable transition. Um, so when you look at the word dialectics, you notice a couple things about it. First, it begins with die, meaning two. And it also looks and sounds very similar to the word dialogue, which refers to words spoken by a character, like in a conversation. So a dialectic is a conversation between two people or ideas or just forces. The concept of dialectics has its roots in ancient Greek philosophy. Those of you who've read some Plato will be familiar with the dialectical structure he employs. In works like The Allegory of the Cave, Plato pits a fictionalized Socrates against some member of the Athenian public and asks them a straightforward question about philosophy. And the opposing person generally is made to respond with a widely accepted view of the issue. And the dialectic takes place as Socrates progressively asks more and more questions, identifying contradictions between the ideas presented to him and the observable phenomena that they are meant to explain. And the dialectic ends when a conclusion is reached that satisfies both parties because it no longer possesses the internal contradictions that the original ideas being challenged did have. And many Greek philosophers believed this to be the absolute best way to arrive at a philosophical truth. And what's important to notice about these dialectics is that Socrates does not come in arguing the conclusion against the status quo. He attacks contradictions in it and allows the idea to develop progressively until a conclusion without contradictions is reached at the very end of the process. I feel like this is really difficult because everyone's going to value different things. Is someone going to value, you know, life? Or is someone going to value someone's freedom to make economic gain? Is, is this more about both sides making concessions or both sides coming to an agreement on what's really important? Because the latter sounds incredibly difficult and so, like a so, years-long process so it's not it's not two theses and they reach a synthesis there's thesis and antithesis and the thesis is generally you can label them whatever you want but there is a distinction because the thesis is the the status quo 
the thing that is in place right now. And the antithesis, it comes in the form of comes in the form of identifying internal contradictions within the status quo. Or, you know, yeah, that it comes with inter- it's 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 a set of criticisms that um, identify contradictions within the status quo that need to be corrected before they create some kind of a disaster. Okay, so it's already very narrowed down, is what I'm hearing. It, it, yeah. it can't be two giant, broad ideas. Well, I don't know what you mean specifically by that. I mean, no. I mean, why not? Uh, that I mean, Plato is always talking about really broad ideas, and he's using dialectics the whole time. Okay, give give me an example of some uh, of one of these debates. What would be the two sides? Well, it's not two. Would sides. it be like it's state-sponsored one, communism it's and? Well, no, it's, it's not two sides. It's one person. It's the Socratic method. One person asks a question, and they get an answer, and they and they identify, and then they and then they ask another question to get to go like, okay, well, I don't know. I didn't prepare a dialectic, but you might, you might like. Okay, let's say that um, you're talking to someone who thinks that the war on drugs is a good thing, and you say, why is the war on drugs a good thing? And they say, I don't think people should do drugs, so I think they should be illegal. And you say, well, you know, we found that in certain countries who have legalized, uh, who have decriminalized drug use in certain ways and prioritized treatment over criminalization, uh, we actually see not only reduced rates of things like overdoses and, and, uh, and like really dangerous stuff, but also just lower rates of drug use in general. Because people can get uh, treatment. So if that's how you believe, then if that's what you believe, that you just don't want people to use drugs because they're harmful, then you should actually not support the war on drugs. That's a dialectic because you're identifying contradictions within the status quo um, belief. Okay. You can't can't support um, criminalizing drug use if you want to reduce the use of drugs yeah. because decriminalizing drugs would actually make people use drugs less. Yeah. Perfect. But the use of this method to arrive at truth reflects a deeper philosophy about the basic function of the world. The Greeks saw the world around them as a network of opposing forces that balanced out and produced equilibrium. As the dialectics of Plato and Aristotle show us, these contradictions are not to be left in a constant and unchanging balance. They demand inspection. They necessitate change. So the world is always in a state of change and always in a state of transition. In Dialectics of Nature, Friedrich Engels exalts the Greek philosophers for this. He says that while they were lacking in much of the scientific knowledge that came much later, the Greeks possessed a deeper wisdom about the true workings of the world around them that only in his time was beginning to be rediscovered by Europeans. Engels places the beginnings of the modern scientific movement at the Reformation in the 16th century. And in this era, we learned new and exciting things about astronomy, geology, physics, biology, chemistry. But all this knowledge was packaged along with this great misconception that the world is immutable and unchanging. We could observe the anatomy of humans and various other animals. We could chart out the arcs of the planet's revolutions around the sun, But we didn't understand these phenomena as they are, 
as transitory results of an ongoing process, as things that, by the very fact that they exist at all, must have come into being at some time and must cease to be at another time. And this view of the world as unchanging and constant is inherently reactionary. Obviously, right? When you believe the world is inherently unchanging, that implies other beliefs. The order of things as they exist at the present moment has to be taken for granted. This applies to nature, but also extends to our society. The rule of kings can be seen as equally natural as the predation of the deer by the wolf. And Engels calls this philosophical position the metaphysical view of the world. Ultimately, the undoing of the metaphysical view was the fact that it isn't true. It's just not. And as we discovered more and more about the physical world through the scientific process, the metaphysical view became untenable. Darwin is probably the best example. His theory of evolution, which continues to form the basis of our understanding of the origins and development of species to this day, basically blows metaphysics away. And when we analyze the theory of evolution, what we immediately notice is that the process it describes is dialectical. The development of species is motivated by contradictions. An organism has needs, and it has the ability to get certain things. When there's a contradiction, such that what an organism is able to get is different from what it needs, it either goes extinct, or it undergoes some change so as to correct the contradiction. Of course, evolving is not something organisms do intentionally. It's not really something organisms do at all. It just kind of happens. And biological processes that determine whether an individual organism does or doesn't have a certain trait are fundamentally random, but the factor that determines the success of a trait on a population level is its ability to correct these contradictions. The process of contradictions becoming more pronounced and then being corrected is what Marxists are talking about when they use the word development. When they talk about the development of capitalist society, for example, they're talking about the contradictions within the system becoming more pronounced to the point that they must be addressed and corrected for, or we all die. Which is looking more likely every day. I, mm, fair. I hope we have just a dramatic overcorrection right now. We just, we just switched over to fully automated luxury communism real quick so you you don't care about gays in space um i care about gays and i care about space but together you know it'll it'll happen if it happens so there's a really important distinction that we have to make in order to keep our conversation of dialectics firmly in the marxist and materialist camp Marxist dialectics are an evolution on Hegelian dialectics. Hegel basically said a lot of the things that we've already discussed about how development is a process by which contradictions are corrected and produce something new. However, Hegel was an idealist, not a materialist. And what I mean by this is that Hegel believed that the mind was primary while the material world was secondary. And basically there was no such thing as reality like in, in, in the core sense of the word outside of human perception. And this means that the really important dialectics that occur and change our lives are the ones that occur between competing ideas. The Marxist view is a materialistic one and is the exact opposite. According to Marx, the material world is the site of truth and our minds merely observe and reflect that material truth. 
and often distort it. Uh, but this means that the driving force of natural development is material conditions. Remember that evolution, for example, is a materialistic dialectic. Organisms are motivated to evolve based on what their bodies physically need and what they are physically able to acquire. These are material conditions. Likewise, the conflicting forces that keep an object in orbit, the gravity that pulls it towards a planet or a sun, and the inertia that keeps it away, are also material conditions. And the confluence of the primacy of the material world over the mind, and that dialectical view of the world, where things have contradictions and they develop and, and, and they continue to change all the time, that's what we call dialectical materialism. Does that make sense? Yeah, most of it. I mean, I caught about half of that. I'm not going to lie, but yes. That sounds about right. So let's remember now that dialectical materialism is not a view of human society. It's a view of the natural world. If we want to apply dialectical materialism to human society and its development, and we do want to do that, we arrive at historical materialism. We discussed this briefly in episode 8, in which we gave a short overview of some of the basic tenets of Marxism, but we're going to dig down a bit deeper now. In order to apply dialectical materialism to society, we first have to recognize the primacy of the material world to the mind. And what I mean by this is that when you look at the root cause of why a civilization takes the shape that it does, you look primarily to material factors. You look at the geography, the climate, the natural resources in the area. You might look at the population size. As society develops, you would also look at the various methods of producing the goods needed for survival that the civilization has available. Marx called this the mode of production. What does this look like in action? Well, let's take two ancient river valley civilizations, Egypt and Mesopotamia. Both of these societies were built along the banks of great rivers that periodically flooded, depositing silt which made the river banks extremely fertile for planting, which allowed civilizations to flourish there. When we look at their religions, we notice some significant differences though. While Egyptian gods are generally viewed as nice and charitable, Mesopotamian gods appear much more mean and fickle. And an idealist might attribute this difference to some distinction between the people and their perception. The ancient Egyptians were a more optimistic people, for example. A materialist, however, might attribute this difference to a material factor. Both civilizations relied on the periodic flooding of their rivers, but these flood patterns were very different. While the Nile had a highly predictable flood pattern, which made farming more productive and dying from floods easier to prevent, the Tigris and Euphrates in Mesopotamia were much more erratic, so farming was more difficult, and deaths from floods were more common. And a materialist will always choose the material factor over an ideal factor when explaining how a society got where it is today. So that's materialism applied to society, but where do the dialectics come in? Just as in nature, dialectics are how we understand the motion of things. Societies change and develop dialectically. Like an animal that must overcome contradictions between their needs and their abilities, a society must rectify its mode of production with its material conditions. The transition from medieval feudalism to capitalism can be viewed this way. The rights and privileges afforded to lords, as well as the general system of land ownership, was catered to a feudal society in which most people were serfs who tilled their own land for much of the year, produced their own food, and manufactured most of their goods on a communal level for direct use rather than for sale at a market. 
Commodity production, which is production of goods for the specified purpose of selling it at a profit, did exist and so did wage labor, but these examples were largely the exception rather than the rule. However, the forces were already at work within feudal society to bring the individual manufacturers of goods together into large workshops and factories, producing goods for sale on the market. Those who owned the workshops became the bourgeoisie, not as a result of a societal shift towards capitalism, but in fact predating that shift by quite some time. The shift of the mode of production away from individual to socialized labor, and from agriculture to industrial manufacture, exacerbated contradictions in feudal society. These contradictions were between the emerging mode of production found in the workshops and factories, and the feudal rights and privileges that had been designed to fit a feudal mode of production. The ideological shift towards capitalism and bourgeois democracy should be viewed as an attempt to rectify these contradictions. Of course, as we know, the creation of capitalist society created a great many contradictions of its own. Capitalists are motivated by profit, so they bring many workers together in large urban factories to produce goods as cheaply and efficiently as possible, but bringing these workers together on such a scale creates an opportunity for them to form class consciousness, organize, and resist. It's more profitable to ignore the effects of your manufacturing on the environment, but the destruction of the environment makes it harder to do business in the future. It's more profitable to pay your workers lower wages, but doing so means that fewer people have the money to buy your goods, which eats into your profits on the other end. Capitalist crises occur when the contradictions between the ideal and the material become too great, and explode catastrophically. Take the 2008 housing crash, for example. Financial products were sold to investors, which were essentially bets on the likelihood that a number of homeowners would pay their mortgages. Now, just because an investment carries risk doesn't automatically mean that there's a contradiction. However, contradictions do arise when the ideas are incongruous with material conditions. In this case, the approximated safety of the bets being made were not accurate reflections of the actual risk in betting that the mortgages will be paid. This was done because it was more profitable for the financial institutions selling the bets. By selling high-risk bets at low-risk rates, they had essentially created money out of thin air. And once the inevitable occurred, and the high-risk bets started acting like high-risk bets, that money disappeared even more quickly than it had been created in the first place, causing the greatest financial crisis since the Great Depression so far. I love talking about the 2008 financial crisis and i was looking for holes in that very concise um explanation of it and i struggled to find any i was that that was that was very good oh we're gonna we're gonna talk about um we're gonna talk about the current financial crisis as well right now i thank god thank god thank god we have context for today so the financial crisis in which we see ourselves in at this very moment is likewise the result of contradictions. The prosperity of our economy is based on a lot of factors, but principal among them is the velocity of money, or the number of times the average dollar is spent in a given year. In order for our economy to do well, money must be constantly moving around. But money can't move around unless people are also moving around, and therein lies the problem. Because now we have this global pandemic, we have to choose between keeping the velocity of our money high or letting hundreds of thousands die from a disease that can be defeated by a couple of months of social distancing and sheltering in place. And it's not like hundreds of thousands of deaths is good for the economy either. That's the contradiction. Yeah, no, but it's definitely also hundreds of thousands of deaths is 
exponentially worse yeah. for a politician's image than mm-hmm. um, a crashing economy, which also may is result it, in is it tens though, of thousands of deaths. Don't most don't most presidents who who serve during wartime get higher approval rates because of it? Okay, depends on depends on who the hundreds of thousands of deaths are. If it's people uh, attending a wedding. Mm-hmm. In the Middle East, maybe hundreds of thousands of deaths isn't so bad can live if, with that. if they're collateral damage. You know, that, that might be fine. But if it's um, Midwestern white people who just want to go to Applebee's, fuck, dude. Uh, you better watch out. That's the flyover states are a significant part of your voting block, and you should probably take that into account. We haven't talked much about utopian socialists yet. Uh, most, uh, But... The utopian socialists were like a pre-Marxist group of socialists, but they noticed a great many of these contradictions in the capitalist system well before Marx wrote anything. The bourgeois revolutions had introduced some dialectical ideas into the mainstream, namely the idea that institutions uh, were not immutable, and so they needed to hold up to scrutiny if we wanted to decide whether we should keep them or get rid of them. Enter industrialist Robert Owen. Owen owned and ran a cotton mill in Scotland in the early 1800s. He had noticed that even though workers were far more productive than they'd been in the past, they were not meaningfully richer. And Owen saw this as an utter moral failing in the capitalist system and sought to organize his mill on superior moral lines. He paid his workers significantly more than the average wages for cotton mill workers, and he had them work fewer hours a week. He even paid them the exact same wages during times when the mill had to stop production for one reason or another. And the result was a community with no poverty and no need for police and all surrounding a highly productive cotton enterprise. What Owen was doing here was like an ancient brewer making beer because he knows it's safer to drink than water, but doesn't have the knowledge yet to understand that it's the boiling of the water that makes it safe. So what Marx does when he develops his theories of dialectical and historical materialism, which are two terms that Marx didn't actually use. Um, those are terms that are that were attributed afterwards, uh, in hindsight, to explain the ideas he was getting at. But those are not words that Marx coined himself, so just keep that in mind. But what he does when he develops these ideas is that he's basically introducing germ theory into the brewing process. And socialism goes from being a good and moral idea to a scientific necessity and an inevitability. Dialectical materialism shows us exactly where the problems in capitalism lie with surgical precision, with surgical precision, and also gives further theories a structure and direction. We can see that the birth of capitalism implies its eventual death and replacement with a mode of production higher in the development chain. And it shows us that the purpose of creating theories of socialism is to align our economic I- is to align our economic ideology with the actual material conditions surrounding us. And yeah, I mean, I don't know. I just I feel like you're not like feeling it the way I did when I read all this shit. But I was like, oh my god, like I I understand why it's important now because at the core of like, if you've ever argued with a conservative of any stripe, you've had a moment where you get really frustrated because you realize that you have 
to get over this hump with them where they just fucking assume that everything that exists as it is is like it automatically gets like an an automatic justification just because it exists right now and if you could just get them to pull back and 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 not have any preconceived notion of of the way we do the government now or the way we organize our economy now gets this a priori like justification and just gonna let that go and just fucking look at it you could convince so many people of so many good ideas you just you 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 make this grand assumption mark that i just haven't given up on conservatives in general that i'm not just descending into nihilism and assuming that at best there'll be grill-pilled centrists who are also um ascended centrists aka nihilists with me um i any anyone who will sit down with me you know and actually have you know a nice little exchange of ideas i'll i'll explain how this shit is a ticking time bomb you think but we should start doing debates debates mark who 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 are we gonna debate who is this tiny little I don't know, 1,300 follower podcast going to debate. My landlord? I'll get my landlord on the podcast. There are plenty of four-figure followers, uh, right-wingers on YouTube. That? Yeah, I know you're doing this as a bit, but I actually don't. We'll debate some conservative TikTokers. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, dude, we'll, we'll debate... Yeah, if yeah, if anyone knows any um, PragerU followers um, who've passed the test and gotten full marks on the PragerU tests, um, we'll 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 debate you. Um, me and Mark will tag team tag team them. But yeah, that like really fucking frustrating uh, reactionary impulse that conservatives have to just like assume that what is right now is the right way to go just because. Like, dialectical materialism stands in diametric opposition to all that. Because it's about... Just because something... Ex- because because it rejects the idea that it is possible or desirable to take a snapshot of the world and view it like that. Things are always viewed as being part of a process. And part of a process that isn't cyclical, either. Like, there are no cycles... And dialectical materialism. It's always further development. Even things like the moon cycle is not a cycle because the moon is in an orbit that gets a little bit farther away from the earth every single day. So every single moon cycle is a little bit different. Every single year, even though we think of years as cyclical, it's a little bit different. And the years began when the solar system was formed and eventually the solar system will die and the years will end. And so it's not cycles. The world is in a constant state of development. And we can think of development as being progressive and getting higher, but that's not necessarily the case. But the the material conditions that will come out of the process of change, um, both in human society and in just nature, will always be the ones that sufficiently correct for the existing contradictions in the current system and so that means that as people who think in terms of dialectical materialism when we look at what's the most important thing today 
we're looking at what material conditions are in ascendancy, what's coming next, not what's here right now. Yeah, to try and to try and like wrap this up and bring it home just a little bit. Mm-hmm. I think a great example of um of of the kind of phenomena you're talking about with anyone who's not a leftist, I guess. Yeah. would be um eliminating the police. No one can imagine a world yeah. without the police. So many guys Whenever you bring it up to someone, they're like, "Okay, who who's going to do this?" And you're like, "Someone more qualified. Who's who's going to respond to like instances of um I don't know, like 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 jumpers or domestic violence." I was like, "Great. Therapists and social workers. Someone who's more qualified, who's not the fucking cops." So, yeah, and it's they, like they just and it's can't like, can't wrap their heads around anything other than what they've known yeah. their whole life, which is understandable, but at the same time, like just like be be even just a little idealistic about it yeah and it's like i don't like i understand that if you have a whole conversation with people about whether or not the police should be existing in their current form or scaled back significantly or abolished entirely that like they're gonna come away agreeing with me but so often the idea that they should even consider and think about and make the effort to actually argue against because the the position they disagree with is totally like even getting them to that point is basically impossible a lot of the time. Yeah, you just like <laughs> and I, I, and yeah. the fact that a big conservative position is that liberal snowflakes don't want to have a debate about anything is hilarious to yeah, me. Yeah, it's always been projection. But I have another good example, I think, of how we can apply dialectics to how we think about things right now. One of the, one of the completely fucking anti-dialectical ideas that we have just been pummeled with for the past few months. I mean, it's gone a little bit by the wayside since, um, since, since, um, the kind of month or so succeeding Super Tuesday. But the idea of electability, the idea of there being a set of ideas that you can run on and a set of ideas that you can't run on. And basically, like that that that's that's obviously the 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 charge that gets brought against farther left, um, certainly not far left, but farther left um candidates within the Democratic Party. And the argument is always that, like, oh, like we like the ideas, but they're not electable, you know, and that's a big thing, you know, you gotta you gotta they gotta be electable. And it's like, I don't have a problem with the idea that we should be balancing our ability to keep power while doing certain things with the things themselves being good. Like the fact that there should be some interplay between those things, I think is a, a, absolutely true. But the problem is that is that the, the idea of what is and isn't electable is always talked about as if it's immutable and as if it's just this constant thing. And that say democratic leaders um, can't come out in support of these things because they're not popular. Um, and there's very little understanding, it seems like, that actually a lot of the reason that there's actually an interplay and that, that, that you know, we, we think of Democratic politicians as being influenced by their voters and not the other way around, when in fact it's really a two-way street of influence. And a lot of, a lot of voters think that certain things are mainstream or not based on what their politicians say. So actually, if a lot of Democratic leaders started coming out and saying we like Medicare for all, um, 
that would make it a more electable idea to run on in and of itself. But it's treated as immutable because they're taking a snapshot of what seems electable in this moment without considering how changes in our strategy might also change what is an electable idea. That would be applying dialectical thinking to the concept. That's the thing, though. People like like our, our politicians aren't necessarily saying like, I don't want Medicare for all. They're yeah. saying they're saying America doesn't want it or the American middle or the American moderate voters yeah. don't want it. The straw man of the American moderate voter is a complete farce and totally stupid and has been stifling progressive politics for decades now. It's Yeah, and it's and it's an obfuscation of what is actually it's the same thing as when um they say we can't afford this. It's an obfuscation of what of what they actually mean, which is I don't want to pay for this, which is not the same thing as we can't afford this. It's different. Oh, no, absolutely. It's I, I think it can best be summarized as everything is impossible until it happens. Like you couldn't have imagined 10 years ago uh, someone with the word socialist even preceded by democratic running for president. And now and now it's happening. Well, it, it, it was at least it was happening. I, he, he, and now he, and now he, and now we're at the point where uh, we're just posting memes uh, where Lenin says, and where does your failed electoralism lead you? Back to me. <laughs> so, OK, there's there's there is um, an aspect of dialectical materialism or dialectics in general that I didn't get to go over because it's kind of it felt a little bit disjoint. I know it's like it's like it, it is important, but it did feel a little bit disjointed. Um, but it is also important, and that's that it's not just that things are always in transition, but that the way that we categorize things, um, and thinking of categories as always being like these things with clean lines and 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 not as being inherently contradictory in themselves and needing a kind of a subjective mind to 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 like parse them out, that's also like an inherently reactionary uh, thing. You know, it's just with Jordan Peterson a lot how Jordan Peterson is like obsessed with we have to be able to categorize things and those categorizations have to be objective and you know they have to be consistent we have to have one way of like categorizing everything in the world and dial a part of dialectics is recognizing that this is totally impossible and one of the big things that i you know i saw Engels talk about this i saw stalin talk about this is that one of the most fundamental categorizations that we have is between the qualitative and the quantitative and what we notice is that this seems like such an obvious thing like it seems really obvious what's the difference between a qualitative and a quantitative change or value or whatever but when we examine it closely we see that even this really obvious categorization breaks down upon further investigation let's think about it like this you have a propane torch that will burn at a certain temperature for a certain amount of time before it runs out of fuel if you double the amount of fuel, the torch will burn twice as long. If you instead replace the propane with a different substance like octane, I'm not a chemist, but I think it's safe to assume that some of the properties of that burn will be different, even if the amount of gas is the same. So the doubling of the protein, so the doubling of propane is a quantitative change, while the changing of propane out for octane is qualitative. Simple enough. But if we zoom in, we see that the qualitative difference between propane and octane becomes quantitative when viewed on a smaller scale. 
Ultimately, both compounds are just combinations of a different number of the qualitatively identical hydrogen and carbon atoms. Even the difference between two elements is only the difference in the number of protons, neutrons, and electrons. And we can apply this breakdown to economic relations too. We think of the difference between proletariat and bourgeoisie as being qualitative, not quantitative. The bourgeoisie are not just richer than the proletariat in terms of how many dollars they have, they have a wholly different relationship to the means of production, in that they own them and make profits rather than laboring with them and making wages. However, it's the accumulation of money that allows for the purchase of capital in the first place, and this capital can only be purchased once the amount of money an individual possesses has reached a certain minimum. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah, no, I, that makes that makes total sense. It's like half of, like like the first part of what you said um, in regards to breaking things down into smaller parts makes uh, qualitative things more quantitative. If yeah. you're doing an ML ag- algorithm to um, categorize different, I don't know, you say images, ML, uh, machine machine learning machine algorithm. Le- oh, I was going to ask you if that meant multi level. No, no. And okay. for this podcast, I thought you would have assumed it meant Marxist-Leninist Well, algorithm. I knew it didn't mean that because there's no algorithms in Marxism-Leninism. <laughs> not yet. They don't call it the yet. immortal math. I, fuck off. Um, but, but you're you're going to break it down, pictures of school buses, into like a certain like percentage of uh, yellow pixels of this shade, certain number of black pixels of, the, of this shade in certain positions. Um I don't know, and then use like a k-means algorithm to say, okay, um, when they're in, when certain pixels are in this kind of cluster, then that indicates a school bus or doesn't indicate a school bus. So, two two things that may seem um, like like an opinion once once you break them down into really 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 small parts, it can all be quantitative and broken down and made more black and white. So, this is a really cool way of explaining that. I thought. Yeah, and that's di- I mean that's dialectical materialism right there. Um, it, I think the hardest part with dialectical materialism is figuring how to get it to apply to socialism. But I hope, and, and, and you know, you know, the thing is, at the end of the day, I think that a lot of the ideas within dialectical materialism, a lot of the conclusions that it reach at, reaches, are things that leftists in general tend to understand on their own like like why is dialectical uh, materialism important well it implies that the world is always in a state of transition that the that history is not cyclical so what comes next could be something we've never seen before and what comes before might not repeat in the future um these are all things you need to understand before you can begin to talk about doing politics or, or, or taking political action to make the world a better place, right? You have to accept that change is possible for the better, that change is actually inevitable. And then you also need to be able to identify, you need to be able to resist the methods of um, categorization that the reactionary society you're currently living in is going to try to impress upon you to make you live your life a certain way and think about things a certain way. You need to escape from that. And you also need to be able to very specifically identify um, why it is not just moral, but necessary for you to make these changes. And those contradictions within the current society are really where, like, it beca- it goes from, like, a thing we should do to a thing we have to do. 
And that's kind of the core of what Marx does for socialism. And that's where you get the term scientific socialism, where it's now we're talking about the socialism of facts that don't care about your feelings. And I know this probably should go without saying because this is a leftist podcast, but um, the, the worldview that you eschew the current state of the world for should be more empathetic and not more selfish. Yeah, because we and, and that's that's one of the material conditions that is in contradiction with our ideology. We have a highly individualistic ideology, but we are also packing people together in these big factories. And we I mean, that's more of an industrial revolution kind of thing. But we have but but at this point we have. I read an article um, when I was getting my econ degree uh, about a pencil and how a pencil is made and how nobody knows how to make a pencil. No individual can make a pencil because or at least not, not, not the Dixon Ticonderoga that you write with in school, because I mean, like really from nature, the graphite comes from one place and the wood comes from another place and whatever they mix up to make them. So the, if there's an oil based paint or whatever, and the, 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 the brass in that that holds the eraser on and whatever the eraser the, the rubber that the eraser is made out of i mean these all come from completely different places they're mined by huge numbers of people they get transported around the world they get assembled in a factory they get sold by completely different people like this is something that kropotkin talked about which is like who like okay labor creates value and people should be compensated for like their labor but h- how do you even know like who, like whose labor went into a product like a pencil involves the labor of thousands and so the idea and so that creates this ultimate contradiction between the selfishness and individualism of our like ethos that we all like live in today with the way that we actually do stuff which is highly cooperative and that's what that's what marxists are talking about when they talk about the increased socialization of labor because they were coming from a world that was transitioning from skilled craftsmen who owned all their own tools and made and made shoes or tools or whatever and they might employ an assistant or something like that but the capitalist way of thinking the capitalist mode of production kind of works for that because it's like your labor and your expertise is the primary impetus to this thing being made so the fact that you might pay an assistant some wages like isn't really that exploitative in the same way that it is now where you have someone who owns a huge company where tons of people work and they rake in all the profits while out, without even having to work at all if they so choose. Yeah, it's it's really easy to do that when everyone is is so isolated. Yeah, you can exactly. see you can walk into a Walmart and see probably thousands thousands of different products that you can see the work of tens of millions of people. I, I know I had to think about that one for a yeah, second. Yeah, you- I could be hundreds of millions. Who knows? Like, I don't, I don't necessarily know how many people are in a given supply line. It could be, it could be millions for for each individual one. Oh no, easily, easily. And you don't think about that because every because we're so focused on instant gratification that it doesn't it doesn't matter to us. We don't, mm-hmm. we don't. Um, when we buy bananas, we don't think about the people that had to pick them, uh, grow them, ship them, transport them, or, or like stock them in the shelves that we pick them from. You know, it's. It, it, it's it's really easy to think like we we get somewhere 100 percent by ourselves when we can't go to work to do things for ourselves yeah without someone else's help it's true 
So that's do you do you, do you feel like you kind of get dialectics a little bit more now? <laughs> I know I'm more depressed now because I, I don't know. I feel like not, nothing's ever going to change again. The same way I feel about the end of every other one of these episodes, which is fine. Which is fine. That that's no, that's but, the um. But dialectical materialism should actually give you hope because it means that no matter how bad it gets. I mean, I mean, I, we, we could all just die. I mean, that's, we could all just die. That is, that is definitely, that would, that would destroy the contradictions in capitalism. But we also, like, it, it means that that reckoning is inevitable and it has to come someday. It can't just go on forever. Like, 1984 is wrong. There is no boot stamping down on humanity forever because the contradictions have to come to a head at some point. They develop and they exacerbate and they have to come to a head at some point. So what I'm hearing is that even if we, even if climate change uh, is not curbed within the next 10, 15 years, we all die in horrible weather events, at least all have been right. Pretty sweet, right? It, it's, it's pretty cool. It's pretty it, it feels good. It's it feels lit. good, man. <laughs> <I'm>... <laughs> oh. I, I, Poland ball comics are inherently reactionary, but I did f- see one that I enjoyed quite a bit. That was about like all the country balls are are like trying to get into heaven, and they have to they have to get across a bridge that is as thin as a blade, um, and they have to find some way to walk across. And it's you know showing all these different country balls going trying to get across the blade in different kinds of ways. And then at the very end, it's just the USSR watching them all from the atheist void. What? <laughs> what was, was the USSR inherently anti-theist? Yeah, dude. Oh, I mean, really? It's kind of based. Uh, on like a uh, on like an institutional level. I mean, it's not like there were no religious people in it, but like, yeah, they were the godless commies. Do. You okay, I gotta let I gotta go let my plug the Twitter the before we go. Oh fuck! I plugged it mid episode at We Read Theory Pod you on have Twitter. To plug it at the end, please. At, at We Read Theory Pod on is Twitter. Anything, is there anything else we want to we want to tell we want to tell our people that that I that I love and care about each individual right. one of them? I dig it. I I love you all too. Have a dialectical day. <laughs> Fuck off. Ha 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 ha.